guest today is Karis Granger Bogwa. Karis writes for the Atlanta Journal Constitution, the blog Scary Mommy. She's an education advocate, a national board certified teacher. She's been featured on CNN and Good Morning America. She's one of Melissa's best friends and taught school with Melissa for a number of years in the public school system in Maryland. Karis, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. Scott, I'm really, I'm really excited to be here. And I thank you so much for the invitation um, to share a little bit with you. Great. So could you start by just telling us a little bit about your background and uh, experience that kind of informs a lot of the other things we'll be talking about? Sure. So I thought a lot about recently um, all the parts of my identity, all the parts that sort of make me who I am and, and, and where that began for me. First generation immigrant, my, my parents are from Trinidad. I was born in Trinidad, came to the United States as a, as a baby at a very young age. And, and my, my parents were in school. We moved around a little bit initially while they were getting their degrees. And we settled in Georgia, um, maybe when I was about five or six. So I spent the majority of my formative years growing up um, in Georgia, in the Deep South, um, in, the, in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, you know, things were certainly different in Georgia then than they are now. Um, there was no Stacey Abrams. There, there was a lot a lot that was different for me as um, a little black girl from Trinidad growing up in the South. So that that's one part that sort of formed my identity. The other thing that I think is kind of interesting and that has really sort of shaped me is that I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. So I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, my parents raised me Seventh-day Adventist. And while my, my father was and still is sort of very liberal, um, he's willing to, to push the envelope to challenge thinking. My mom was very conservative, really adhered to uh, the letter of the law, the rules in Adventism. And so that for me also really shapes my identity, Scott, because I went to church on Saturday, um, which was not really the norm around me. Um, our family observed observed the Sabbath. So from Friday to uh, sunset to Saturday at sunset, the Sabbath was pretty strictly adhered to. So no television, no radio, no going out to eat, no going to the mall. You really can't even play outside. Uh, so that also sort of separated me from a lot of my peers. Um, and shaped who I was, but but also at a very young age, I developed a love for Jesus. And I think that that was something that was really just expected in our home. And fortunately for me, it wasn't something that I ever resisted. I, I sort of uh, gladly welcomed that part of my identity, but it shaped my relationships with other people, um, being a first generation a daughter of first-generation uh, immigrants and uh, also being Adventist. Um, so those things sort of started me. I, I grew up here in Georgia um, and went to school at 
in predominantly white schools. Again, back then in the in the 90s, I guess you could consider the area that we live um, outside of Atlanta about 30 minutes north rural at that at that time. So um, there were not a lot of people of color who looked like me. Um, and that was that was definitely the place where I started feeling very othered and recognizing that um, my experiences were not the same as other people, but also really wanting that experience. So seeing, seeing my white peers and feeling like, well, that's what I want um, because I didn't have anything else to relate to. Um, but my story kind of changed right after high school. I honestly, by a miracle, because my grades were relatively average. I got into Spelman College, um, an HBCU, all women. And for the first time in my life, I'm looking around and I'm seeing people who look like me, who speak like me, um, who value uh, education, um, critical thinking. And that sort of began this awakening um, that I am, I'm not alone in this world. Um, and so I spent four years at Spelman, graduated with a degree in English, um, and had been working part-time in the editorial department at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, just kind of by luck. My neighbor um, happened to work in that department, and she helped me get this job. And so I'd been working at the newspaper, and with a bachelor's degree in English, I was kind of like, I've, I've no idea what I'm going to do with my life. Um, my parents are both educators, and so I thought probably that's what I needed to do, but they both were very much like, don't don't go into education. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, I don't have anything else to do. I'll go back to school. And so that's how I ended up in Maryland, um, enrolled at the University of Maryland, College Park, um, to study journalism because... I was working at the newspaper, so that seemed like a natural fit. Um, and yeah, so I got a master's in journalism and hated it. I never felt comfortable pursuing the story, um, going after people in their most um, intimate and vulnerable spaces to, to get them to answer questions. It made me feel awkward. It made me feel uncomfortable. It made me feel intrusive. And so journalism never felt right for me. Although I always enjoyed writing. Um, I worked after grad school at an education nonprofit in DC, um, which is so interesting when I think about how my story unfolded, that job um, focuses on education advocacy for um, black and brown students, low-income students. And I was working as a copy editor. So I was just reading their publications and editing editing them. Um, but I still felt this call to teaching. Um, again, my mom was a fifth grade teacher. My dad was a guidance counselor. So I very much knew that sphere and I felt comfortable there. And against my mother's wishes. She very clearly said, Karis, do not pursue education. Um, it's, it's hard, it's, it's thankless, um, it's political, it's not where you wanna go. Um, despite all of that, I, I became a teacher. So I decided to sort of pursue an alternate route to teaching certification. And I ended up in the classroom, Scott, for um, about 13 years. Um, got to meet Melissa. And, and really, I think as surprising as it is, even for myself, I really found my calling as a teacher. I always have considered myself 
a little bit more reserved, a little bit more introverted, maybe even shy. And I think as a little girl, I struggled to find my voice. I struggled to find my voice. And so being a teacher is all about speaking. It's a little bit about performing. And it felt sort of contradictory to who I was. But for whatever reason, it worked for me. Um, and I think a lot of that might be because of my ability to empathize maybe because I had had such a rough experience in school. Um, so I may not have been the best English teacher, but I, I, I felt strongly about seeing my students, uh, seeing them for who they, they are, for their stories, for where they're coming from, from what, for what makes them who they are. And, and that really propelled my, my teaching and allowed me to, to, I think, thrive as a teacher. Um, but as life goes, you get married and you have babies and you take a break sometimes. <laughs> and, and that's where I am right now. I, I've left the classroom to be a full-time stay-at-home mom, um, especially now that my son, my son is seven. He just turned seven and he's just finished the first grade. And for me, being a, a public school teacher for all those years, it was very important for me to be able to uh, participate in his educational experience in a very hands-on way that I did not feel like I could do as a teacher um, myself. So a big part of becoming a stay-at-home mom was so that I could advocate for my son. And um, fortunately, I've been able to do that through my writing over the last couple of years in, in a pretty impactful way. Yeah, so, so your son attends school in the same school district that you did, is that right? He does. He no, does. The same, it's the not same county. the same county. Even it is. It's it, it is the same sort of district. Even it's just that the school he attends now was not built when I was a student there. But it's sort of the same pattern. So um, the high school that he's zoned for is the high school I graduated for. I mean, we're we're really in the same exact community. Um, we live ten minutes from the house I grew up in. One thing that that stands out to me is that um, some of some of what you have to say about, uh, in the, well, in the way of critique about um, the school system or the school system as a space that's predominantly white. Uh, yet some of what you have to say about those things is not entirely uh, flattering, but you are coming at it not as someone who has no idea how school works, right? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so with that in the sort of background, in fact, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you're, that, that's understatement. You're quite well acquainted with how school works, mm -hmm. right? Even, yeah, and right. even, <laughs> even, um, even being, you know, like a second generation teacher, you know, that's, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. relevant too. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, so with that in the background, I guess there's this, narrative, I think, um, in a lot of, in the minds of a lot of Americans about uh, progress mm -hmm. and how, uh, particularly around uh, issues of race, race and inclusivity um, mm -hmm. and how, uh, well, you know, I mean, the civil rights movement per se was, what, 60 years ago now, something like that. And right. we've mm -hmm. come so far, right? And uh, I mean, what, as the parent of a 
students in the same school district in the South that you grew up in, and as someone who is intimately acquainted with the details of the education industry, what would you say about that? The, the, the idea that we've achieved a lot of progress. So I would push back a little bit, Scott, because yes, there has been progress, but for me, it's quite clear that there has not been enough. What I find interesting is that the demographics of the student body, um, the demographics have changed. So there are for sure more black and brown students in the school district now than when I was a student. In fact, I believe it's like 65% minority, putting that in, in quotes, 65% um, students of color. So, so that has changed and that's positive. You know, there's, there's more diversity um, among the student population. What I see is that there has not been a lot of change with the system. There's not been a lot of change um, in, the sh in the power structures. So the teachers and the administrators are still majority white. Um, the, this, the school board, the superintendent, district office, those things still feel very much like they felt on the outside looking in, um, like what they were when I was in school in 92. And that to me is the problem. Your, your demographic, your population of students and families, they're changing. So why is the district not changing with it? That, that's what it appears on the outside. That's not to say that we're not having more conversations. We are, but I think that we're having these conversations um, surrounding race, equity, diversity, inclusion, all those buzzwords. I think we're having those conversations um, sort of because hands have been forced, not necessarily because people in positions of power want to have those conversations, not because they've been seeking ways to have those conversations. I think because there has been a national awakening um, surrounding these issues, there's no other choice but to kind of have to address them. And that's great, we're talking about them. I just wish that it felt more authentic. I, I wish it felt like um, these people in power were willing to do the work without somebody sort of tapping them on the shoulder and saying, hey, it's time to do this work. I wish that they were doing it on their own. And I just don't feel like I've, I've really seen that um, as a parent. So I'm not in the classroom. I'm not a teacher now. I'm a parent on the outside looking in. And for me, it doesn't seem like they are working um, hard enough. Yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll say something about a personal experience yeah. uh, on my end. And maybe maybe you could, well, maybe you say, well, gee, Scott, that doesn't sound like anything I've ever seen. Uh, or maybe, or maybe you say, uh, you know, maybe something occurs to you that, that you might sort of uh, expand on the on the uh, anecdote. So, um, Melissa and I were, were recently at a church where there was a lot of talk about diversity, inclusion, multiculturalism, right? Uh, you know that that sort of thing. Um, there was a little bit of talk about justice, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is, which, you know, I'm a political philosopher. So to me, like that's the core issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but, but 
not 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 that those other things are 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 bad or unhelpful, right? Um, but in any case, there was a lot of talk about it, and there were committees, right? Let's start a committee, you know. Right. And and I, you know that that became troubling to me at a certain point because it's um, if if the com- <laughs> if the point is forming committees, then great, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, <laughs> right. Mission accomplished, yeah. But what if if the if obviously that's not the point. Right. And if all right. that happens is you make committees and people get together and talk and nothing ever happens, then you're wasting everyone's time, first of all. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But then the people of color who have who are on the committees, uh, who have agreed to commit their time uh, and energy to the project. I mean, it's sort of it's sort of abusive. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's just you're just. At a certain point, you you're just giving them the run around, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that was an experience that, or that was yeah. my uh, perception. I don't know if that is familiar at all yeah. to you. It, it, it absolutely is. So I think that's exactly what's happening. We are forming these committees and these work groups and these book clubs and um, saying we're, we're gonna do the work. So I've got, I've, I've got a couple of thoughts. First, I think the, the time for committees is gone. We, it, we're too late for the committees. We should have ha- had committees years ago, um, decades ago. We should have been work grouping this a very long time ago. If we're just now forming the committees, we're, we're just behind and we need to move at lightning speed to get somewhere else. Um, so that's the first thought. The, the second thought I have regarding these committees Um, is that too often I have felt, I have experienced, I have seen that a lot of the work is still falling on people of color to kind of help guide what needs to be done. So listening to you speak made me think of something that my husband and I recently have been sort of grappling with. Um, So last summer, George Floyd, um, protests around the country, he works for a health organization and they decided healthcare organization and they decided um, we need, we need to talk about this. You know, we're talking about it on a national level. Let's talk about it, you know, regionally. And, and we need to figure out how to do that. So my husband suggested um, that, that they read a book. He read it and he was like, Hey, this is a really good book to start these conversations. I, I think, you know, if, if we want to do something, let's start with that. And so they said, yeah, great. Let's, let's create a book club. And so for maybe three months, the course of the summer, they would meet um, once a month to discuss a set of chapters. Um, and what he noticed and what was very frustrating to him was that the conversation really revolved around a few select people of color sort of speaking up while some of the other people, um, non-people of color kind of listened under the guise of, hey, I want to, I want to process this. I want to kind of hear it. I want to sit with it. And that felt very frustrating for my husband. Um, You know, you just want to listen, but you're not doing any of the work. And then after those three months, Scott um, 
you know, they, they initially had it in the mornings, like we're going to do this at eight o'clock in the morning. First thing, let's let's talk about it. They shifted the meeting to five in the afternoon and it was optional if you wanted to join. And it just kind of petered off after a while and, and it's gone and nothing came of it. You know, we were just talking about it recently, like, hey, what happened to that book club? And the answer is nothing. And so I feel committees are problematic because of that very reason. It's easy to feel good, like we're, we're talking about this, but I don't know that a committee is enough. And I don't know that people are doing the work necessary after the committee is formed. And I don't know if that really kind of speaks to you and Melissa's experience at church, but that's my gut reaction to this idea of uh, let's get together and, and make a committee. Well, even the, even the white guys are sort of sitting there, right? It, it, it's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to pull up a chair and you can bring me your perspective. Right. right? And, um, and, I'll, and I'll listen to it. Uh, whereas <laughs> right. years ago, I, w- I wouldn't even, I, I, we wouldn't even go that far, right? But like, right. yeah, right. I'll listen to your perspective and then I'll do what I'm going to do. Because right. I'm still right. the guy making Not good decisions. enough. Yeah. That's it. And, it. and it's not good enough. And, you know, it, it feels offensive if I'm being if I'm being honest. Sometimes it feels really offensive. It's it's not okay anymore to sit down and say, "Hey, I'm I'm listening to you." I just feel like that that's intellectually lazy. Um, it's weak. It, it's it's just it's doing the bare minimum in in my mind, in my perspective. Maybe this is too personal a question. I don't know, but but so please feel free to say so. When when that happens, I mean, wh- what is that? I I think I think the 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 folks who are sort of like pulling up the chair and saying like, yeah, we'll listen to what you have to say. I don't. Of course, they don't understand what it's like to be on the other side of that dynamic. But mm-hmm. I don't think they really understand. Uh, the fact that it is problematic and how mm-hmm. taxing that can be. Right, uh, I agree. Could you say something about that? I mean, like, what, like, what does that make you want to sort of do? Or right. what does it make you feel, right? So, so I don't, so I think you're absolutely right. I don't, I don't think a lot of people on the other side are even recognizing how harmful those behaviors are because I don't think they have to. Nothing really changes for, you know, the white neighbor, and, and I love my, my neighbors who are white, but so I'm just using that as an example. Um, you know, nothing really has to change for the white neighbor or, you know, the white mom at the playground or the nothing, you don't have to care beyond listening because you can go back to your, your places and spaces of comfort of privilege, of ease. And so it really takes um, a little extra effort and work to say, okay, I've heard what you've had to say, and now I'm going to act. I'm going to take an active and not a passive role in bringing about change or or becoming more aware um, or understanding a little bit more deeply um, what you were saying. And I just don't think a lot of people are willing to do that work, Scott. And for me and even for my husband i think you know we 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 have had so many conversations over the last year um 
it, there is anger, right? So there's anger because we feel like we're hitting our, our heads against a brick wall. Like nothing, nothing is changing. You're not listening. We're not moving forward. Um, so there's, there's this, this anger, there's this frustration, um, there's helplessness. And then I don't know if I would go as far as to say, sort of like we get to this point of, I don't know if resolve is the right word or, or apathy. Like we go through all these emotions and then you land on, this is just the way it is. This is the way it has always been. And from where we're sitting, it looks like this is the way it's always going to be. And so you kind of, I don't want to say you give up because we can't give up, but there, there almost feels like we're fighting a losing battle. I think that's the best way I can put it. You know, the idea that this isn't going to change in our lifetime because we're looking around and we're listening and we're reading and we're seeing what people are saying and doing. And there just does not sometimes feel like uh, there are enough of us to move to move this 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 movement forward, and that's kind of discouraging, um, to be honest. And I think also as as Christians, there is this struggle, at least for me, um, with feeling anger and and feeling a little bit of guilt around that anger. Like I'm angry sometimes at white people, and I'm kind of making this this huge kind of umbrella category but sometimes I feel that anger and and then I struggle with that it's like well Karis you can't you can't feel that you know God calls us to love and to turn the other cheek and to um show compassion and grace and so I grapple with that anger and and also because I have been so fortunate to have friends who are white who are true allies so then I feel angry because cares you're not considering your friend melissa when you feel angry at white people what about the white people that you know and love who stand by you who are true allies and so so there's always that dilemma for me scott like where where do where do i fall what do i feel um because my my gut reaction is is really to want to scream and to yeah just feel a lot of a lot of anger and frustration um because people don't seem to want things to change. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the fact that you're inclined to struggle against that feeling of anger yeah. is one of the truest expressions of Christianity that we're likely to see in contemporary uh, America. And that's why I, I, I wonder uh, to what extent predominantly black churches like are the church, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's that, like that's like, if I, I've said this before, like if I, if I were an alien and I uh, landed on planet earth, right? Mm -hmm. And never mind how I, mm -hmm. never mind how I read the Bible, but just suppose I read the Bible. Right. Mm -hmm. And I and mm -hmm. I touched down in 2021 America uh, and and I'm looking around for the church. Right. 
uh, I think I'd end up in a black church. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think a lot about that. You know, I think I think the way we have done church has changed, Scott, so dramatically because of the pandemic. Um, and so even my own experience with the Black church, with the Adventist church, I've had to look at um, with a critical eye. Unfortunately, the Black church sometimes seems to need to follow speaking in my own experience and of my own my own church experience sometimes it feels like the the church that they are using as a model um, to emulate is the white church and i don't know that that's the way we should be going um i think that our christianity my christianity i've had to sort of reevaluate what that means in in light of the church because sometimes scott and, and I'm, I'm sort of i'm sort of thinking out loud here with you sometimes i feel like jesus has been hijacked by the white church i feel like my access to jesus is being taken away, obstructed, you know, because I feel like I'm hearing and seeing so much of Jesus not caring about things that I think a lot of people in the Black community care about. And so I found myself really having to be conscious about my own relationship with Jesus. And it's, and it's wild to me because issues of race and justice and Christianity, like the lines are becoming so so blurred for me. Again, I grew up in a, in a Christian home. Jesus was was center and everything, and I and I have and I developed a personal love love relationship with Jesus at a very young age. But now, I think in light of all the other things that are happening, I I sometimes read scripture or or see um, you know <laughs> sometimes my husband has on the local news in the morning and right after the news is it the 700 club i think with pat robertson i think is his name he'll come on and you know i might just be in the in the kitchen washing dishes and my husband's you know gone off to work and so it's on and i'm watching it i'm like it, it doesn't connect in my head how is that the same jesus that i grew up knowing and loving and so I'm almost like, wait a minute, I have to consciously tell myself, Karis, you do know Jesus, because what they're saying Jesus is, isn't the Jesus who has loved you, his, who, who you have loved for all your life. And so I am struggling with that. I'm struggling with the church. Um, I'm struggling to reclaim Jesus, if that makes sense, Scott, because I, I feel like in light of what's happening in our country and around the world now, um, Jesus doesn't always seem to be presented on the side of justice, equity. Yeah, he, he doesn't always seem to be on our side. And I, and I just, I gotta, I gotta grapple with that because that's not the Jesus I grew up knowing. Well, well, it's, it's presented in, in some contexts as, well, I mean, let's be honest, right? I mean, it's a conservative white evangelical spaces mm -hmm. that the push for 
justice and equity is uh, framed as antagonistic to Christianity. Right, and, right, I, and, I, and I, right. think, I think when I first encountered these people saying mm-hmm. that, so, so there's the sort of white American Christianity that just doesn't really talk about justice, right? Mm-hmm. And then there's the folks who talk about it, but talk about it like it's a, like it's a bad thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've right. never really encountered that latter group before I got on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, They're out there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And at first, <laughs> I just thought, man, these people are like these. These they're just grifters, right? I mean, they're just they're just lying, and they know they're lying. Um, but then, as I've researched like the history and culture and sociology of these people, um, I- I've come to understand that they're they're not actually uh in isolated context they might argue in bad faith about certain things right Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. but in general they actually think that uh, justice is antithetic to christianity and i and i and and these are the same people who are apt to quote uh white evangelicals from the south in in the Mm -hmm. say mid-19th century who Mm -hmm. uh enslaved human beings Right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, quote, quote mm-hmm. those theologians. Like of all the theologians you could quote, why, like why? Why, right, why that right. one, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but here's the thing, right? So I think, I think there really needs to be a paradigm shift that mm-hmm. should have happened, you know, a couple hundred years ago, but right. they keep trying right. to tweak their paradigm rather than just saying, you know what, this isn't gonna work, right? So like, like before, before the heliocentric model became the, the you know, the standard view, Mm-hmm. Um, that there were these astronomers who were constantly trying to explain the motions of like the different planets on the geocentric right. theory. And so they're always like tweaking it. It's like, oh no, there's like an epicycle here <laughs> and here and here. And they're always like just tweaking the model, right? And it just doesn't work. Right. Yeah? And so, so I think what happened is that as American culture, uh, first of all, it's a scandal that the church is being dragged along on the path on the on the arc of moral progress by unbelievers. It's right. absolutely scandalous. But as that's happened, um, a lot of white evangelicals have just tried to tweak the paradigm, right? And so, like, oh no, slavery doesn't work, but we're still going to oppress women, and we're still going to have segregation, and we're still mm-hmm. going to have Jim Crow, but we just can't have slaves anymore, right? right? And then it's like, okay, well, we can't have segregation anymore, but we're still going to oppress women, and it's mm-hmm. this you. That it's this idea that at its core, what Christianity about is about is about domination, mm, mm-hmm, right, mm-hmm. and power, and 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 I just don't recognize that as a version of Christianity, and yet yeah. it's so common. That's right. That's right. That's that's exactly where I am. You don't even recognize it. This is not the Christianity that I recognize, but it but it seems to be the status quo um, these days. And that bothers me it, because I, I want to raise my children to know and love Jesus. I want to raise my children in a Christian home. But I think in 2021, Scott, with all that is happening around us with social justice and anti-racism, there is a true challenge, um, at least I have found, in helping my children care about issues of, of justice um, and Christianity. 
I am struggling as a parent to help them see that they can exist together. Um, so I'm sure I, I, I did share this story with Melissa and it, and it really, this happened recently and it, and it really rattled me. And it, I think it speaks a lot, Scott, to sort of my personal struggles right now with, with Christianity and, and, and how to make it real for, for my black children. My daughter was walking, she's four, she's walking with my mom and they were talking about heaven. And again, I mentioned earlier, my mother, very conservative Christian religion, you know, that is sort of her foundation, the lens in which she sees the world. So they're talking about heaven. And um, my mom mentioned that heaven is going to be a perfect place, this idea of heaven. It's going to be perfect. And because it's going to be perfect, that means you are going to be made perfect. So my mom explained to my daughter that that meant that, you know, if you have a cut or a scar on your skin, when you're in heaven, that's going to be gone. You're, you're going to be made perfect. If you've got a runny nose, if you're sick, that doesn't exist in heaven anymore. And my daughter in that conversation and in hearing this idea of perfection said to my mother and I, and my mom shared the story with me later. So does that mean that when I go to heaven, I won't have my brown skin anymore? Does that mean that my skin will be white? She didn't verbalize, my daughter, Naomi, did not verbalize that perfection in her mind equates to whiteness. But as I listened to that story, those were the, the dots that I connected. For her, and what she's seeing around her and even her understanding of Jesus and, and heaven, it means white. And, and, I, and I don't know where that comes from. I, I don't, other than perhaps the reality of whiteness being centered all around us, no matter how you might try to shift that narrative for your children. The reality is that when she looks at TV or when she sees people outside, whiteness seems to be centered for her. But I don't want my children to equate Jesus and heaven and perfection and maybe Christianity with whiteness. And, and that kind of goes back, I guess, in my own mind, Scott, to what I feel like Jesus is being hijacked. He's being taken away. You don't have to have white skin, Naomi, in order to be perfect in heaven. And so how do I have, and, and that is something that I, I mean, it really has costed me a lot of sleep. You know, I've really grappled with this over the last several days. How do I help her see a Jesus who cares about race and justice and who also thinks who she is in all of her brownness is good enough, is worthy, is perfectly made. And so I'm struggling with that because I, I want Jesus in my home, but I don't want a Jesus that is going to make my children feel less than um, second class. That's just something that has been really on my heart recently that conversation with my daughter and what that what that means for her
things that interests me about your project and, and what you're working on is that you are so you got you got the folks who are trying to like you know persuade the the room full of white guys that things aren't as they should be right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but i i think something that's really powerful potentially is to go to say moms mm -hmm. right and say hey you know you're not permitted in that room full of white guys either right right, <laughs> right. you you know how that is like now maybe you can't identify with you know some other uh, aspects of this person's experience but you can identify with being excluded uh right. purely on the basis of some physical characteristics right, right. that's not good right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and I, so i wonder if that's really an kind of untapped source of of leverage now, that seems to me to be a lot of the spaces that you're speaking into, right? It's just talking to, to other moms. Yeah, so I would hope that woman to woman, mom to mom, there is a common bond. And that is a love for our, our children. Not to say that dads don't have that, but there is there is a special sort of nurturing that most mothers do most most mothers want only the best for their children and and by extension the best version of the world for their children and so i feel like having conversations on that level should at least soften some hearts i think um because i want to believe in in the human spirit and in and, and in humanity's heart for goodness. So I, I, I hope that I can enter into spaces in that way and say, well, hey, we might not agree ideologically, um, politically, but we can agree on um, wanting the best for our children and, and not just my children, but your children as well and vice versa. So, so surely we can agree on some things there. Um, and so I always kind of enter my writing that way. Like I'm not trying to be antagonistic, although, you know, people get angry nonetheless. You know, I've, I've been called, you know, Marxist. I've been. <laughs> That's my favorite somebody. one. That's my favorite one. Yeah. Always, always the Marxist. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, somebody said, there's no space for people like her. I'm going to stand against her at every turn and everybody else should do the same. You know, like people are genuinely angry with some of the things that I say and write, but in no way am I going in there trying to pick a fight. What I want to do instead is sort of approach it with some compassion and with some empathy and hope that you can sort of tap into the softer side of people and, and then we can move from there. It does not always work. So there, there are two things that I'm, I'm thinking. The first is that, so you mentioned earlier, Scott, that as moms, maybe there's some common ground there. What I have been shocked by is how a lot of moms, white moms in particular, don't, not all, but a lot of the moms that I have sort of seen and interacted with in some circles, um, they, they don't want to rock the boat they 
and you know, I'm, I'm in Georgia, I'm in the deep South. They are the Trump supporters. They um, are comfortable with their husbands leading and, um, you know, they're just comfortable with that. And so when I look to them as a potential ally, mother to mother, race aside, I have been shocked that I have not often seen an extended hand. You know, I wrote about just that isolation that I have felt specifically as a, as a black stay at home mom, because I'm not really hearing and seeing from the other stay at home moms who in my experience have been predominantly white, this, this equal concern to, to, to right this wrong. And that is surprising to me because I do think what you said, like maybe as moms, we can kind of enter this together and, and make a change. And, and, and I'm still hoping and I still write believing that I can tap into that, that I can tap into that. But it, it is hurtful to be, to be honest. It is hurtful when I look around at the other white moms at the playground, you know, at the clubs and activities and sports um, in, in the schools. And there is silence or even worse, there seems to be true comfort. Like they're happy where they are. They're happy with what's happening. You know, nobody is, unless they're not speaking it out loud. Maybe they're having quiet private conversations behind closed doors amongst themselves and I'm just not privy to it. But very few people have come up to me and said, hey, Karis, like, I hear you. I care about this. I care about you. I care about your children. We can work together. Let's find ways to have these hard conversations and work together. It just hasn't happened. And that is a very lonely place um, because you think that you, you can find some, some commonality with other moms. And that isn't always my experience. I mean, obviously, I don't know the people you're talking about, but I, I, I worry that they're not having those conversations. I don't. I, I worry that they, that they, um, some, some of them didn't watch the video of right. George Floyd's murder and hear yeah, him saying, saying, "Mom." Right. Know, yeah. Uh, I, because you can't, you can't hear that and not hear your own child's voice. That's right. That's right. Uh, so why did they watch it? it, it, it's, it, it there was an aspect of that that was transcendent. You would think. So, 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 right. So maybe they're not watching. Maybe they're not paying attention. But, but why? Why? And that, that to me is, is the, is this, is what's perhaps the, the biggest scandal of the American church today. Cause I, mm. I would bet based on where you live that those people go to church and here so we are like, having a conversation where you're saying, uh, I, I, I just, I think it would be such a bizarre conversation to, to, you know, anyone from a different context, right. Who doesn't understand all the layers of, Mm -hmm. you know, our present cultural context, but you're, we're sitting here having a conversation where you're saying, I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile my concerns about justice with um, what I hope to teach my children about Christianity. 
That's uh, right. When, when the when the fact is that uh, it's there's not there's nothing to reconcile, right? I mean, it is that is that 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 is so much the core of Christianity. It's not about it's not right. about domination. It's about right. it's about flattening these hierarchies that exist, and yes. and and the church instead of being the place that pats these folks on the back and says, no, no, this is, this is all okay. This is, this is an, an expression of God's design for humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In, in, instead of doing that, the church should be saying, you know, this is not okay. Right. Right. And, 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 right. and pushing people mm-hmm. to, to say, no, the, the, the rate at which our government kills African-Americans is just not acceptable and, and imprisoned African-Americans is not acceptable. Right, right, right. It's not happening, Scott. <laughs> it's it's not happening, and it is tragic. Um, because you're right. I know to be true that th- these people around me are the epitome of Christian values. They're they're at church. They quote scripture. They post scripture on their social media. They're they're lovers of the Lord. But I don't ever hear them say Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's that it's that simple. Or, you know, I want my children to receive um, an anti-racist education. Instead, you know, and I'm sure you've, you've seen the news. Instead, they're coming to school board meetings um, and completely like, I mean, having a meltdown about the idea of CRT being being in our schools. I mean, over their dead bodies, you will not indoctrinate my children. This is not going to happen. Instead of saying, hey, can I listen? Can I learn? Can we do something differently? They're doing the literal exact opposite. I mean, our school board meeting last week was, I mean, it was a travesty. People are so angry and so unwilling to consider that yes, systemic racism exists in this country. And a way that we can start combating that is in our schools and how we talk to and teach our children and what we teach our children. They don't want to talk about it instead. And I mean, I've seen it, I've heard it, I've, I've, I've read it instead you will not indoctrinate my child. You will not make my child feel like they are less than. You will not tell my my white son and daughter that they are the oppressors and everybody is equal in God's eyes. Every No, God doesn't see color. Everybody's equal. And you're not going to do that in schools. And, and my mind is literally blown. <laughs> it's like, wh- where am I? How do we move forward if you cannot there's just no recognition. There's just no recognition. And, and, and that kind of goes back to what I was saying about that anger and that helplessness. Like if we're willing to, to march on school board meetings and picket, and, and, and I don't know if you've seen this, Scott, they quote Dr. King's, I, I, I wish for the day that my children are judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character. I mean, they hold this sign up and they're like, look, Dr. King said it. It's not about the color of their skin. And and here we are. And our superintendent says, as long as he's superintendent in our county, there will be no theories that are not uh, part of our Georgia standards. And I, as a mother, my little black boy and my little black girl wonder what is to be done because I do not want the same world for them that was for me 
20 years ago. There should be a rule that you can't quote Dr. King unless you've read Letter from Birmingham Jail. Yeah, absolutely. Because you they should. do exactly the same thing with him that they do with the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. They don't read the Minor Prophets or the Prophets mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. or any of the Hebrew scriptures for that matter. You can't avoid mm-hmm. justice talk, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And they don't, and to the extent that they do read it, right? Like they think, <laughs> like they read the Exodus narrative and they're like, they're like, yeah, like we're with the Israelites, you know? <laughs> Like, right. nah, no, man, like you're, you're the Egyptians. Like that's, that's you in that you're story, right? Yeah. And they, but they do the same thing with, with Dr. King where they just, they just, you know, pull out some quotes. It's like all the mm. worst stuff that you see as a high school English teacher, right? right. So like, right. you know, dropping right. quotes. You're not yeah. doing it right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. yeah, it's frustrating. Um, it, it's so, it's, I'm sitting here like just, the, the way that all the language is coded, right? Like mm-hmm. somehow teaching that people are equal means teaching white kids that they're less than. I don't <laughs> get what? it. Where does that come from? I mean- It comes from genuinely... American Christianity. Wow. So yeah, so that's they something- They built the object to justify slavery. They built this whole hierarchy yeah. and Christianity is all about who has the power and dominance. It's the opposite. Mm. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You're saying no. I mean, I'm really grappling with that and trying to understand Scott. So I'm I'm, I'm appreciative of you because I genuinely don't understand why people are so afraid of looking at this whole thing a little bit more critically. Um, I don't understand why critical race theory, in and of itself is so scary for people. And I don't understand why they believe that any conversations surrounding race and systemic injustice must mean that we're teaching their children that they are an oppressor. I don't, I don't get it. And I think as, as, a, as a writer and somebody who tries to influence through my writing, I, I want to, I often start writing by thinking about what the other side may have to say, what they are thinking, so that maybe in my writing, I can address that in an authentic way. But I don't understand this. I've really struggled. I've wanted to write about our our last school board meeting and outcry against CRT, but I don't understand it. And so I don't know how to enter the conversation. I've been thinking about it for in earnest. So, so like, so in grad school, in philosophy, at least, uh, they don't teach you to try to pick apart really bad arguments. Like that's not, that's okay. just not what you do. Like you find the best uh-huh. argument you can find and you contend with that. Okay. So, so when I first, as I said, when I first got on Twitter and, you know, seeing some of these people, I, I, I thought, oh, that's just nonsense. I mean, cl- obviously they know it's nonsense and they're just, they're mm-hmm. just in the line or whatever. But, but I started a few years ago thinking in earnest about like, okay, well, what if these people genuinely believe this stuff? Like, right, like how right. does this work? And I feel mm-hmm. like I'm just starting to get my arms around it after three years okay. um, and, and reading a lot of, a lot of other people's work on, on the subject. Um, I, and I think part of it is the misunderstanding of what Christianity is fundamentally about. Okay. Um, and I think another a really important aspect of it is that they 
think these people think that false teaching is something mm. that comes from outside of the church. So they're not responsible for the false teaching at all. Well, well, so when they when they read that they're supposed to be out on the lookout for false teachers, their their gaze goes uh, outside the walls of their church and they think that they've got to be on the on on the lookout for you know false teaching that might come in never does it occur to them that their pastor might be a false teacher (laughs) right never does it occur to them that scripture doesn't say that false teachers know themselves to be false teachers Right. Now, some of them <laughs> right. might, there are definitely some grifters out there who know that, mm-hmm. that they're that, that, that they're purveying false teachings mm-hmm. um, and maybe they don't care because they're nihilists and they don't believe in God. I don't know. But uh, there's there's, uh, you know, any number of false teachers who don't know themselves to be false teachers. Right, right, right. Um, and so they they think that defending the faith is about uh, defending the established order. Mm, mm, keeping it as it always has been. Right. Right. Um, it never does it occur to them that perhaps what they are evangelizing is a is a false is a false faith. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's time to wake up. I think I think we're gonna be forced to wake up. I think the church. I'm praying that the church is going to be forced to wake up. I just don't know how much longer we can keep this charade up. I really don't. And so I hope that because we are talking about it, because people are getting angry about it, I hope that the church will be forced to reconsider its position on a lot of things. And again, maybe it will not happen in my lifetime, but I, I, I want to believe that there are enough people out here speaking up and doing some work that some of these, you know, white evangelical churches are going to have no choice but to take a long, hard look in the mirror and do some reevaluation. That is my hope, because if it doesn't happen with the church, in the church, I just wonder, Scott, how successful this this social justice movement can be i I really wonder because so many people are rooted in rooted in christianity and they won't they won't budge so we need the church we need the church i agree i agree and i think i i think it's i think in that respect it's an it's it's an exciting uh church can be like an exciting project yeah and i and i my sense is that what's going to happen in the near term is that the uh, white evangelical churches that are trying to to straddle this this divide are just going to disappear, and so um, you're going to see some white evangelical churches get more extreme. I, what 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 number? I don't know. That's sort of in in, in some respects an important question, but. Uh, I think they're going to get more extreme. And then I, and then I think you're going to see a lot of folks my age, a little bit older, like say 40 and under just leave. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. And and then, and then there's not going to be much, much in the middle. And I think that, well, my hope is that the, the folks on the, the churches on the right side of this divide 
will build up a kind of critical mass and we'll start to associate the name of Christ with the uh, with the sense that like when I go and vote, mm-hmm. just for example, when I go and vote, th- the question of like what's best for Christians or what's best for me as a, as a or what's best for me, right? I mean, that's just not really relevant. But like the question mm-hmm. that I'm asking myself, because this is what uh, Christ has called me to do. I don't think, mm-hmm. I don't think, I, I don't think I know like what, how Jesus would have me vote on this, this or this issue. I don't actually think that's all that important, right? Mm-hmm. I think as a Christ follower, I should, uh, when, when I go and vote, I mean, this is a proxy for political participation in general, right? But when I go and vote, <laughs> I should be asking myself, what does justice require of us? And right. what would bring our laws and public policies most into conformity with the truth about justice? And that's that's mm-hmm. what I should be doing mm-hmm. as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I, think, that's right. I think there's, my hope is that there will be a critical mass of, of Christians who act that way. And that that may come to be what, what the church is associated with, rather than opposition to everything I just said. Yes, yeah. right. which is sometimes where we're landing right now. Uh, yeah, I hope that as well. I, I think Christianity should be synonymous with justice. Um, and and we're not there yet, I don't think. And I think what I have felt and what I've experienced in my own spheres is exactly what you have said, this mass exodus from the church. You know, the, the people that I grew up with, the kids that I, that I went to church with, the Adventists that I knew, they're just not about it anymore, Scott. Now, I don't think that that means that they don't love Jesus, but they're not subscribing to the church anymore. And I think that could be problematic, um, but there's no judgment from me because I often find myself feeling those same things. So hopefully there will come a point where something exists that will call us back. That, that will be something that we can stand behind and believe that this is really moving the cause of humanity and justice forward because that is what Jesus would want. It's hard to find that now. In my experience, it has been hard to find, but I want it. I want it for my own children. Um, you know, yeah, like I said, I, I struggle with, you know, how to raise Christian children in this sort of season, but I know that it's important to me to raise Christian children. So I'm hoping that there will be something that exists, um, you know, in the near future that I can stand behind and say, yeah, this is what Jesus looks like. This is what Jesus cares about. He cares about, you know, the kids at, at the border. He cares about transgendered youth who are trying to figure out what bathroom to use. He cares about Black people being gunned down. He cares about those things. And if we love Jesus, we're going to care about those things too. And I just hope that it won't be something where it has to be either or. And sometimes it feels like that. Is there anything that I should have asked that I didn't or anything else you were hoping to talk about that didn't come up? Scott, I think we, I think we touched on, on everything that sort of is on my mind, education and, and anti-racism and CRT and Jesus and justice. Like these are the things that I think about so often 
Um, and so I'm glad to have had a space to talk some of that out with you. Like it's helpful to me to kind of to talk about it and then to hear somebody talk back because so much of it just happens in my head. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really grateful and appreciative of you, Scott, for just for talking to me about it. Oh, sure. I think what you want, right? But I, but I, 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 um, I wonder if it, maybe this is helpful. I might reframe uh, a couple of times you mentioned um, sort of trying to teach your children about justice and then also, um, you know, raise them in the, in the Christian church and that, and that tension there. Um, I think sociologically that makes it, that makes a lot of sense to frame it that way. Right. Because those things are intention in 2021 America, but it sounds to me like what, what you're hoping to do is to actually teach your children the truest expression of Christianity. Because I, I don't, although in our culture, those things are sometimes presented as being intention. I, I don't, I, I, I think, I, I think it's actually impossible to have a true Christian faith with, without mm-hmm. um, being concerned about these issues. You are right. When you say it like that, Scott, it sounds so obvious. You know, you say that and I'm like, yeah, they have to coexist. They, they are one in the same. And so I feel peace when I hear you say it. And then I, and then I walk out of this room and back to life. And then I see that tension happening again. And, and it's, it's so problematic. And it's a little bit confusing to me because I mean, you're exactly right. That is Christianity. It's so simple, but it doesn't always come out that way. And these, these, people like on the on the television show you reference earlier on right these people <laughs> yeah. are like well god's gonna judge america because of all the you know because of same-sex marriage and and so on and so on no 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 when god's judgment descends on america it will be because the american church has set itself in opposition to justice that yeah. that will be the occasion for the judgment so stop, I believe let's, it. let's stop talking about same-sex marriage for a while. Everybody, everybody knows your position on that, okay? Everybody knows. Yeah. We, don't, we, we, we could not talk about that for 10 years, and everybody would be perfectly clear on where you stand on that issue. Still know. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, let me tell you, you that. culture war in the church for a bit. It, 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 it's amazing to me that people, like those I see on the 700 Club, I believe, um, is what it's called, truly exist and, and really believe what they're saying. Um, you know, if my husband comes back in the room, Scott, he, he immediately turns it off. He's like, he's not welcome in our home and he'll turn it off. But I watch it with such fascination um, because, and, and, and because I know there's so many people around me that, that subscribe to what he's saying. And, and that's a little bit scary to me. Um, but it, it is, it is just, it's just bizarre. I mean, that's the only word I can, it's just bizarre to sit and watch that show and hear what they're talking about. And this idea that, you know, we are, we are the truth. We're the truth. So what does that make the rest of us? What is, what are we? A lot to learn for me when I watch those shows. Well, I so appreciate you 
taking the time to, yeah. to talk. It's, it's been a, it's been interesting and enlightening the conversation and Melissa sends all of her love. She really appreciates your polos. Uh, same Scott, you know, and, and I say this to Melissa often, but I'll say it to you as well. I'm so grateful for you and for Melissa and for your voices and for the work that you're doing and for your commitment to the hard things and the hard conversations and spaces that I feel like you may sometimes be the exception. It, it encourages me, you know, when I feel overwhelmed and, and, and a little bit discouraged, it encourages me knowing you and Melissa are, are out there fighting the good fight. I mean, I read your, <laughs> some of your posts on Twitter and the, and the comments and I'm like, wow, God bless you for, for going with these, you know, going back and forth with these people because there are a lot of minds that need to be changed. And, and I appreciate you both so much for doing the work. It, it is an encouragement and it has been a blessing to me. And um, I talk about you guys so often to anybody who will listen. I'm, I'm proud to know you both, Scott. Well, thank you. It's uh, if if all if all we ever do is is um, encourage you, then that's worth it. So um, I appreciate that very much. Thank you.